first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Hey, what's up? This is Mikey, the baby from Look Who's Talking. Uh, I'm a little bit older now. I can actually talk <laughs> before you could just hear my thoughts, which I don't know how they did. Uh, Hollywood is so crazy with their effects. But uh, anyway, I wanted to tell you real quick, before you get into this Bad Science podcast, I want to tell you about my new podcast. It's called Look, I'm Talking. And I just talk about whatever. I talk about the news. I talk about some food that I ate. I talk about my favorite movies. Look, which of course includes Look Who's Talking. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> anyway, to get you properly amped up for my new podcast, here's a here's a clip from it. So I told the bartender, no, you don't understand. I spilled my drink. So I'm not paying for another drink. I want the same rum and coke I just got and paid for, but I want to actually drink it this time. It's not my fault that the beat was so sick that I dropped my drink while I was dancing. Anyway, to hear other great stuff like that, please tune into my podcast wherever you get your podcast. It's called Look, I'm Talking. And I hope you enjoy this podcast that's analyzing the beginning of my career in Look Who's Talking. All right, I got to go for now, though, because I got to go smoke a cigar and eat 14 hot dogs because that's what I do every day. Science. Did the movie get it right? Bad science. Or will we have to fight? Bad, bad, bad. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bad Science. I'm your host, Ethan Edinburgh. This is the show where we dissect the science of a movie with a comedian and a scientist. And today we're talking about 1989's Look Who's Talking, a movie that got a budget of $7 million and then made like $280 million. is a gigantic hit. And if you haven't seen it, I really recommend that you do. I'm just going to go ahead and start the show by saying I've really always enjoyed this movie. I saw it a bunch of times when I was little, rewatched it today and re-loved it. It held up so much more than I thought it would. But to give me their points of view, I have two guests, and they're very close to one another, and I'm talking about physically, not just they have a good relationship. They are currently sharing headphones, I've learned, and so I will introduce them first. First of all, we have a stand-up comedian, Justin Shepard. Hi, Ethan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here, Justin. And your wife, who is sitting, I assume, on the same chair. Are you guys sharing a chair? It's a bench. You guys are sharing a bench? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, great. Joining you on the Bad Science Bench is an assistant professor of public health at the University of California, Irvine, Dr. Christina A. Uban. Thank you. From bench to bed for us over here. Bench to <laughs> That's a science joke. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Bench to bedside. What does that mean? Like farm to table? Is that? <laughs> it's like lab bench to bedside, oh. like to the clinician's hand. Sorry, it was a bad joke. I'm not the comedian <laughs> no. in the room. Okay. I, I, I should have just got it. I should. I've been doing this long enough that that should have made sense to me, but of course it didn't. And that's just a good way to prove to the audience that I will always be behind. Never, never feel bad. I'm, I'm behind you. I'm catching up always. Um, so what did you guys think of this movie? When did you first see it? What's, what's your relationship to the film? So, uh, we are both eighties babies. So we are both about eight to nine when it first came out and loved it wow. and rewatched it. And uh, yeah, it did. It did hold up. I watched this movie a bunch when I was a kid. I just remember it cracking me up as a kid. 
uh, jokes that were yeah. way over my head that when I rewatched now, I'm like, oh, that's what he means <laughs> yeah. with the psychedelic hand after he got the dimmer all shot. I was like, <laughs> when I was a kid, I was like, ah, that's funny. But now I'm like, oh, wow, that's kind of, you know, maybe that's not so great. It's kind of funny just to hear Bruce Willis talk in the baby's voice. Like seeing a baby and hearing Bruce Willis is already funny. Yeah. And scientifically speaking, I think all babies have Bruce Willis's voice, right? Until Correct. they actually develop their own. Yeah, I don't need to check with the doc on that. Yeah, that's how natal day two, they lose it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so we all love the movie. That's great. We're going to get into it. I want to hop back for a second and talk about your work, Christina. Doc Christina, of course, which is, I assume, what everybody calls you? <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay, fantastic. Even my kids. Even you make your kids say that? <laughs> yes, she's very adamant about not mommy, it's Dr. Yubin. <laughs> Dr. Eubin, of course. Um, so you uh, you work at the Developing Brain Laboratory, is that correct? Yes, yeah. So tell me, what kind of brains are you developing? <laughs> so we're trying to look inside developing brains as they develop uh, using magnetic resonance imaging, MRI. And so we put humans, human kids, in a scanner, and we basically you know, take pictures of their brain, pull it off the scanner, and do a bunch of fancy stuff with it. And you can tell a lot of different things about the brain, depending on what type of picture you take. So um, it's really hard to get, you know, since we're talking about babies today, you can put a newborn baby into an MRI and take pictures of it. You can even put a pregnant woman into an MRI because it's non-invasive wow. and you can take pictures of a fetal brain developing. But once they're, you know, 12 months old, I mean, good luck putting a baby in there. Some people can do it. It's it's very few people can do that. So you miss this whole window from, you know, one year of age to five years of brain development in humans. It's really hard to study because, you know, you're not going to put a toddler into an MRI. Because they won't be able to stay calm? Yeah. So they move too much. Wow. So the, the idea is, you know, you take a picture with your iPhone and you're taking a selfie but if you're if you're moving around too fast, you don't get a good picture. And this is the exact right. same with the MRI. If there's too much motion, you just don't get mm -hmm. good data from it. Have you tried feeding the kids a bunch of turkey? <laughs> so people have sedated. So if you have a kid that really needs an MRI for a clinical reason, they will sedate kids. But you would never do that for research. Um, because it's immoral or just um, <laughs> yeah. if it can hurt the kid, there's side effects? So. <laughs> yeah, all, all of those. Exactly, Ethan. <laughs> okay, because I'm, I'm, I'm asking so specifically because I am opening up my own private practice laboratory, and I don't know exactly what right. I'm doing yet, but I've just been, yeah, just trying to sedate uh, a bunch of children. So I just wanted to know the best way. It's best to just wing it. Yeah, I think you're on the to right just, path with yeah. turkey, the triple fan. Just, you know, <laughs> see what happens. That's what I've been doing. That's science. Yeah, and they love it too, and it's fun. And for me also, I get to kind of have Thanksgiving all the time. I make yams, and it's kind of a, I don't know, it's fun. <laughs> um, okay, so you're, you're also doing work. I, I was reading a little bit, sorry if that sounds weird, but you're trying to improve mental health outcomes among those with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Uh, I had never heard of this disorder before, so can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so... FASD, so fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, is an umbrella term, and it refers to many different diagnoses, all related to alcohol exposure in utero. So during pregnancy, if mom consumes alcohol, uh, we consider it, you know, a toxin, we call it a teratogen in science, and that causes harm that um, can, you know, it lasts with a child forever. So, you know, obviously, you know, some women drink different patterns of alcohol, there's other substances on board, nutrition matters, all these things matter. So 
kids are affected differently by alcohol consumption in utero. And so the ones that are really affected, they have trouble with normal cognition. So just, you know, math, uh, long-term thinking, thinking ahead, planning. They have trouble with social navigation of friendships and other relationships. Hmm. Um, they also have a really high prevalence of mental health problems. So, you know, uh, by the age of 10 or 11, we're talking 90%. Of, of people with FASD will have a diagnosed mental health problem. Wow. Really young. Yes. And then a lot of them are incarcerated. A lot of them fall into addiction. A lot of them are homeless. And if they get into a good home early on that's stable, that's a really good thing for them. But um, yeah, we know that at two to 5% of our American kids in schools right now have FASD. And a lot of them, most of them are undiagnosed. It's more common than autism, yet people don't know what it is. Wow. I've never, yeah, that never, uh, I don't know where it would have come up, but yeah, I'd never heard about that at all. And is that like, what kind of um, alcohol consumption, like what causes this? Right. So the dose matters. So blood alcohol levels. So if you sit and drink a lot, you know, you sit and drink six drinks in one night, mm -hmm. that will cause more harm to the fetus than if you spread those six drinks across six days. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Overload. I'm going to jump in here too, because I've had the pleasure of learning a lot of this stuff alongside Christina as she's studied all this and gotten to know this community. But uh, some important points are that alcohol is one of the only thing that can cross the blood brain barrier. So, wow. which is very fascinating as opposed to they're still learning about marijuana and other drugs and toxins and stuff. But basically what that means is if you have a 0.08 BAC, blood alcohol content, so does your fetus. Shocking. Right. And so instead of the blood brain barrier, because all drugs will cross that, it's the, um, so in the placenta, uh, the baby, and we're getting right into the science. This I is know. like Sorry. my heaven. <laughs> oh, okay. Great, great. Yeah, same. I'll, I'll jump back and forth, I promise. But I, I okay. you know, when I was reading your website, I was like, man, I've got to get to this uh, immediately. Yeah. It's important for people to know. So, you know, the all different drugs. So if you smoke nicotine, if you use, you know, cocaine or methamphetamine or opioids. No, not you cocaine. Know, the, <laughs> all of them except for cocaine. Cocaine's okay. Uh, yes. no. <laughs> so all the all these drugs with abuse potential. So I mean it really is anything, whether it's legal or illegal. So licit or illicit, it does not matter. That's just a legal term. Mm -hmm. They all cause harm. And so you know, cannabis is natural. It still has abuse potential, which means that it has harm to the developing fetus. Mm. And what people don't realize is that we think of, you know, cocaine or meth or opiate or, you know, a heroin being more harmful than alcohol because we all use alcohol and it's legal and not everyone uses alcohol, but it's, it's very common. Mm -hmm. And the difference is that it gets into mom's blood system and the baby's blood system is shared, but the placenta filters a lot of things out. And so, however, you know, the dose of drugs in mom's system will be diluted by the placenta, except alcohol, because alcohol goes through the blood, but it also is uh, lipid soluble, <laughs> just throwing all, all the science terms out. Uh, lipids are fats. And so your cells, you know, our cells, the boundary are made out of uh, fatty tissue or, or uh, fatty substance. And so alcohol can go right through. Uh, lipids and the other drugs can't. So they remain Whoa. in the mom's blood system. They go through the placenta and they go to the fetus. But alcohol also can just cross the cells of the fetus. So the baby gets it from mom's blood. The baby also gets alcohol just as it, you know, um, diffuses through the placenta. So people don't realize the harm of alcohol. Um, and of course, kids with FASD probably also have other substance exposure. It's not just an alcohol story, but 
alcohol uh, is not as safe as as our legal you know status makes us think it is. Okay, so if you guys take anything away from this, if you're pregnant or about to be pregnant and you want to drink a bunch, eat cookies instead. I don't know how many times I have to say this. Brownies. Uh, what else could be a healthy vice? I I don't know if that's the healthiest vice, but um, or take a walk instead of getting drunk, right? Exactly. Eat a jar of pickles, ice pickles, cream, whatever you're craving. Bunch of turkey. Just no alcohol. There's no safe amount. Yeah, meatball <laughs> sub. Come on. Um, okay. Again, I want to get to the movie, but just listening to you, I have a question. So, how much does it affect the the fetus if it's the guy who's the one, you know, uh, upon impregnation uh, or you know beforehand, if they are really drunk or if they've been, you know, taking some sort of drugs? Is that you know, similar risks. Yes. So you're like right on the pulse of FASD research, Ethan. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> you should you should join us. Um, okay. You have a spot in the Developing Brains Lab. Great. My ninth job. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I need more jobs. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's it can be remote um, oh, during the pandemic. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that, it, that's a really good question. So we do know there's, you know, some animal research that has just exposed the dad. And so the things that the, the sperm pretty much have three phases of spermogenesis. So we're getting right into the sperm, which is the beginning of the movie. So this is great. Mm -hmm, um, which I also wanted to ask the, you about if you thought that sequence was <laughs> accurate. I, I thought it was, I thought I enjoyed watching it. I thought they did a pretty good job, but the timeline, certainly it takes a lot longer for a sperm to break into an egg. Um, like Ooh, it can be days, a lot but more work. Um, yeah, a lot more work than what they showed, but and there's usually a bunch of them, um, mm. not just one trying to get in there. But uh, <laughs> so by the time a guy hits puberty, puberty is this really cool thing that really just stops all that crazy, awesome plasticity you have as a baby and a toddler and a child. And the puberty is, you know, your hormones are basically reaching adult levels at that point, And they stop this plasticity in the brain and the body. And it also is the first complete phase of spermogenesis. And now there's two more phases that we know of. Um, it's still, I think, a really under-emphasized uh, area to study. I don't think we know as much as we should about it. But the second phase and the third phase do happen in close proximity to when conception happens. So lifestyle of a dad does matter. So we know that cocaine has been shown to show no, up in offspring. Yes, I know we're back to cocaine. <laughs> ah, okay, wait, I do want to take a second and say, I don't condone the use of cocaine. I've never tried cocaine. Please continue. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it really is going through the stage of maturation. And that's when the alcohol or other substances or good healthy behaviors can also keep doing and in influencing the quality of sperm. And so we now know from animal research that dad drinking, the father, the paternal contribution of the genetics, mm -hmm. it's an epigenetic. So it's, a, it's a, like a dimmer switch of your genes. So your genetic material can be turned up, it can be turned down through methylation, and it's like a dimmer switch. So it's not necessarily all or none. And so uh, dad's behavior, specifically we're talking about substance use, before conception, and we believe it's around, I think, three to seven months for those last two stages. Uh, I need to fact check myself on that. But it's, it's you know, within the year leading up to conception, within the most recent months, that that sperm is really being kind of finalized and what kind of mm. genetic material it's going to bring to the egg and what genes are going to be tuned up and what genes are going to be tuned down as epigenetics. And so dad does matter. 
And now we know that if mom drinks during pregnancy, you know, that baby is more likely to be harmed if dad also drank during these key times. Wow. And now we have some human studies to actually support this, where we see that paternal grandmother, so that's dad's mom, so that's the child's grandma mm -hmm. on the dad's side, and the maternal grandma, so the child's grandma on the mom's side, whether or not they drank alcohol when the parents were in utero probably matters. It's a strong hypothesis and there's data to support it. And there isn't really any data to say that that's not the case. So wow. it is something to think about. Yeah. So if your kid's going to be affected by alcohol while you drink during pregnancy will matter. What was dad doing during those final stages of spermogenesis maturation? And what were, was his mom doing? And what was your mom doing? All those things could shift the scales so that the fetus might be more at risk for being affected by substance use in utero. That is fascinating. And also, I want to take this moment to promote my new electronic dance album called Spermogenesis. You can get it wherever <laughs> music is streamed. And my new book called uh, Dimmer Switch Dad. Uh, <laughs> Dimmer Switch Dad. Tips to keep your sperm bright. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask actually about uh, sperm donors. In the movie, there's a line where she's talking to her friend and they say like, I want a Nobel Prize winning sperm donor and something like that. And I, it, it flashed back a memory for me of being like, either I was in college or out of college and I was looking for any random way to make money as I did most of my life. <laughs> but anyways, what kind of person is the average sperm donor? Because they, at least in the movie, she was like, you know, kind of joking around about Nobel Prize winning sperm donors, but isn't that who should be donating sperm? That's ideal. Yeah, I think that that's super 80s to want a medical student. Um, I think that's that was totally something that we believed in the 80s. Mm. Now that we have, you know, mapped out the entire human genome from the Genome Project, and now that we understand, oh, it's not just your genetic material, it's your epigenetics that turn these things on or off. And so uh, now we realize that there's over 500 genes that really contribute to what we call global intelligence. And so global intelligence is just like every kind of way you could be intelligent in terms of taking a test for something or performing in school, not, not necessarily including emotional intelligence, that's a different kind of intelligence. But mm. if you're talking about just cognitive intelligence, um, global is kind of just averaging across all the different ways. And we know that over 500 genes really contribute to that. And they're usually a combination between the maternal and paternal genes. So the mom and dad both contribute and they contribute like 500 different, you know, versions of it. So it definitely having a smart dad and a smart mom are awesome. <laughs> but but mm. one's not going to necessarily get you there. And maybe mom and dad had tuned down genes and you, you know, and or, you know, the epigenetic profile can change. And in general, you know, we believe that over time, generations get more and more intelligent. I sure hope so. It doesn't seem like it a lot of the time, but um, <laughs> hopefully I'm wrong. No, uh, the youth is always smarter, I feel like. And yeah, I was, I was curious. There's like a bunch of things that you can't do, right? If you want to donate sperm, like I think I was turned away because they said they were going to drug test me. And at the time I had weed consumption mm -hmm. as a pretty common occurrence. So is there other stuff that, you know, will make you not uh, eligible? You know that I think we're getting into the realm of fertility. Um, and I don't really know. I don't really know the science behind what would make really awesome sperm. Okay. And honestly, it's not about this is the best sperm. It's really going to be 
what works genetically. So between the mom and dad, um, the, the two male and female biological combination is going, you know, someone might click with one male and not click with another male. And so you can't really say mm. this is the profile I want. It's really what is the best profile for my genes and things like we have chemosensory. So, you know, we can, we have like pheromones. <laughs> so you, you know, if you are turned off by someone's body odor and things like this, this actually we now know might indicate that your genetic material may not be the best match with theirs. So wow. these, you know, yeah, so it's really about the match. It says here on uh, the California Cryobank, mm -hmm. the parameters are age 19 to 38, height of 5'8 or taller. Hmm. Uh, you currently have to be attending or graduated from a two-year or four-year college. Ouch. Healthy and legally allowed to work in the U.S. Oh, Whoa. okay. Oh, all right. That's interesting. I thought it'd be a lot more strict. Yeah, I mean, it's still... <laughs> kind of discriminatory towards a lot of oh yeah yeah probably very good genetics oh yeah. that's know? for sure so yeah. are you telling me that the <laughs> armpit like if my girlfriend doesn't like the way that my armpit smells when i'm nervous or sweaty that we're not a good genetic match well you don't need to like body odor <laughs> but if you don't want to be with someone uh sexually because of their body odor and it turns you off that that oh. could indicate that your genetics wouldn't mix so i mean i'm not saying that you have to love someone's body odor um okay good i don't think the science is anywhere there <laughs> to tell us that it'd be super cool to do that study though yeah that's true um so sweet i'm in the clear thank the lord um okay <laughs> talking about the movie for a second i did not recall how bad of a first impression john travolta makes in this movie he He's a oh. cab driver. He picks her up and just drives like a murderer. Uh, and then he's also kind of touching her a little bit too much. Did you guys pick up on that? It was the strangest watching that. For me, I was like, how did they not die? He's cutting across alleys. I mean, it could have been a horrific ending. <laughs> and yeah, the touching and all of that. It felt like they really knew each other. And then you yeah. had to remind yourself, oh, no, this guy just picked her up. Two seconds ago. Yeah. Just because I know him as John Travolta doesn't mean that she knows him in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, shortly afterwards, the baby comes out, Bruce Willis comes out, Mikey, and he is screaming that he's so cold when he comes out. And then he's like really soothed by the blanket. Um, and I was just curious about that. Are babies like super cold because it was warmer inside? Yeah. You know, that also was surprising to me. And I honestly just don't know if they're, I don't think it's a cold thing. I think, you know, imagine that you were breathing a liquid <laughs> moments before and all of a sudden you come out and you take your first breath of air. I, I think they cry more due to that. I don't think it's mm. a temperature thing personally, but just a big change. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's hard to do those kinds of studies. People mm -hmm. that do those studies on infants are, are really clever because they have to ask an infant a question that they're not able to answer and infer, you know, things and in a very non invasive ethical manner. So yeah, I think it's all the other changes from going in utero to being out in the world. Yeah, it said, um, speaking of that, they're breathing liquid in there that I, I mean, when I say it said, I mean, the internet told me so I have no idea how accurate this is. But I read <laughs> that babies are born with gills, fur and a tail born with that. That's, no. oh, That's okay. So not no. true. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, no, so babies don't have gills. Um, Thank God. It's definitely possible at some point that um, before they have, before an embryo, 
So that'd be a fertilized egg. Before it fully implants, the place of implantation in the womb is going to, you know, eventually grow and become a placenta and they'll have an umbilical cord and they'll get all their oxygen through mother's blood. But um, the lungs just move and look like they're breathing because they, they need to practice. And I don't, the tale is absolutely true. So us frogs, tadpoles, <laughs> mice, rats, you know, uh, primate, non-human primates, we all look really kind of scary. It's scary how similar we all look across species at those very early stages of uh, embryo genesis when the embryo is dividing. So I don't know if the gill comment you read is related to one of those early, early stages, but they get their oxygen through the mom. Mm. Uh, we do all have tails. They all drop off. And yeah, there's definitely fur throughout the body, um, but not like a thick dog fur, just like a, a hair. Okay, good to know. I think I was just reading uh, Trump's tweets or something, so inaccurate, probably. <laughs> um, Those are all facts. I, <laughs> I, I wanted to uh, <laughs> ask about Mikey when he's like a little bit older. There's like a montage where he's growing up a little bit. And then they mention, I think John Travolta's character says that he's like one years old now or something like, I've only known you one year and you're my best friend, he says. And I was thinking that Mikey looks older than one. I thought he looked like three or so during that time. So if you've, as a parent, I can tell you that we, you know, looked at even him when he was a newborn and the grandma comes to meet him. She's like, oh, let me see my, let me, my grandson. Mm -hmm. It's like, he's four months old. Where have you been? You know, uh, <laughs> he's definitely not a newborn. Yeah. 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 He, he was at least a year and a half, maybe closer to two. Yeah. Yeah. yeah when we were watching the movie together, we were like, no, that's he's way older <laughs> than what they're saying. He is. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone who's been a parent had, identify that uh I, I assume you guys also just identified with or related with the troubles of you know crying at all times and uh i, th I think at one point she pours coffee into her the bottle by accident <laughs> yeah we definitely went through the sleep deprivation it's pretty crazy trying to keep up with a with the little ones as they're ever waking every two hours and but mom has uh, extra hormones in place is that correct mm -hmm. to help uh yeah uh, and dad doesn't get those, but, uh, mom has to do a lot more of the work. So do you guys have uh, tips? Like should people, do you have like a special Red Bull recipe you want to give out? Oh my gosh. Uh, so we were living in Los Angeles and we had no family there. So my tip would be live by family if they could be helpful. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, we didn't know we didn't have any family in California. So, uh, you know, your friends become your family. Just take all the help. If you're somebody like myself who has a hard time accepting help, just get over that really fast. <laughs> the sooner you get over that, the better off you'll be. Wow. Um, and I'll, not, not all babies are bad sleepers. I, we yeah. had a couple bad sleepers, but, uh, not everybody has that. Okay, good to know. We don't talk to those people anymore. Yeah. But I'm sure they're living great lives. I mean, it's a shame that they've got blacklisted, but that's just the way it shook out. <laughs> they shouldn't have had sleeping babies. It's yep. their fault. It is their fault. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go. Back to the show about science. I think in the movie, somebody said that like 80% of women get postpartum depression. And she's like, well, that's not going to happen to me. And then the next scene, she's crying uncontrollably. Does that sound accurate? Uh, so, yeah, definitely the real diagnosable postpartum depression is not 80% of women. It's, it's a much smaller percent. And I really don't know the exact percent. But it's I would guess that it's closer to 
like 15 to 20% of women oh, wow. who actually have postpartum depression. It's, so it's pretty high. It's still really shockingly high. Um, but postpartum blues, like what they call baby blues, mm-hmm. I think people refer to all kind of depression after, um, after you give birth, you know, as baby blues, but there are really, there are a decrease in hormones. At, um, to have birth, you have to have a really huge spike in your stress, one of your main stress hormones uh, called cortisol. And so cortisol, you know, actually reaches these crazy high levels right before you give birth. And that's part of your, just getting your body ready to give birth. <laughs> and yeah. We all know that like labor is super intense. And so it makes sense that you're having high stress hormone. And so then having such huge spikes in hormones and, you know, every cell in your brain has, you know, some kind of sensitivity to these hormones. And then you have a huge decline in it. So it's, it's just like, uh, we're all affected by the environments that we're in, you know, who's there, what are we doing? What are we supposed to be doing? And uh, it's kind of like your brain's affected by the environment it's in. And I often think of hormones as being kind of the environment hmm. or the bath that your brain is sitting in as a really crude, simple, simplified analogy. You know, I would believe that probably closer to 80% of women might have, you know, some kind of blues, but it wouldn't be a diagnosed, diagnosed, you know, postpartum depression. That's okay. smaller. And maybe they could take advantage of that time and make some of the best blues music that they've ever written. <laughs> yeah, get that good down south dirty blues going. <laughs> yeah. It would be so much worse than when she was, she was like, she cried for like three minutes. I don't know. Yeah, I think they were definitely trying to stay away from anything negative because like every 10 minutes in this movie is a Beach Boys song. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Including the beginning where the semen's kind of, so my eight-year-old brain always just thought that's how babies were made to like they we swim along to the beach boys you know yep and, and then we're there wiggle our way in speaking of which i wanted to actually ask about um music being played that's been you know an ongoing theory that affects the baby what kind of music you play that you should play him i don't know peaceful music or classical music do you uh do you know about that yeah i don't think anyone's done any good research to say to actually study it so studying things like what you do during the prenatal period when you're pregnant, what you do during the postpartum, do you sleep train when the baby's two weeks old? Do you sleep train when they're two years old? Do you never sleep train? Do you go to solids? Do you breastfeed? All these things. You know, all the studies that are out there are not what we hold up to the gold standard in science, which is a randomized control study. So you say, hey, moms and, you know, care parents, um, you do, you know, breastfeeding, you do formula, you play music prenatally, you don't. And because parents, you know, self-select into these things and they believe one thing or another. So right. we get a lot of our academic research just from professional expert, uh, you know, literally some opinion with some evidence, but it's not really the gold standard in science. And so when it comes to music, I know for sure that music, you know, different kinds of music ignite different people in different ways and mom's physiology. So if mom's stressed, if mom's happy, mom's chill, mom's, you know, uh, you know, all these things, the baby's experiencing those things. So if mom's listening to the music and is making her feel good, that music's probably making the baby feel good um, just oh. because of the physiological response. Of mom. Okay. That makes and sense. on that note, our babies were born to uh, reggae. Yes. Oh, oh really? <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. You like had it on a like a boombox, yeah. like speakers? Yep. Yep. On we had like one of those little portable speakers that we had in the room with us, but for both kids. So. Was it same reggae we were married to? Is that <laughs> weird? Oh, really? So that you guys yeah. are just all about reggae? Yeah, we like it. Yeah. It's one of the okay, cool. Go to genres for us. Maybe yeah. just at those key moments we go to it. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. 
That Well, I mean, it makes sense because I do think there's like a slow motion, slow down effect when you're listening to reggae. Like it not only calms you, but I feel like it's good study music, I would say. Does that make sense? Yes. And I'd also add that if you can't feel happy from reggae music, because it's music that it's, comes from the most extreme oppression and it's still enlightening and happy and Mm-hmm. makes you feel good it's like yeah it's true if that doesn't make you feel good then you're un- you're part of the alien race yes <laughs> that's right <laughs> um okay there's a part where john travolta's character and it's a super cute part i, I really do want to emphasize how much i really love every scene of this movie um but he i just wrote down because obviously we're going to do the podcast he's like playing with mikey and he literally says shake the baby and then is kind of shaking him back and forth <laughs> and so i was you know it seems like good innocent fun but i just wanted to get your take on like don't uh, you know don't promote this maybe yeah i'll i'll jump in here on this one (laughs) never shake a baby but mikey was clearly a toddler at this point so you can shake a toddler toddler is cool (laughs) not too hard but just enough yeah just enough okay just let him know you know who's boss um (laughs) but a baby no very bad there's a probably still a website. I don't know how old you are, but there was a commercial. You remember that? It was like neversheakababy.org. Whoa. It was a commercial just telling people don't shake babies. Not good for their right. where their spine attaches. Yeah. I feel like because yeah. of how successful the movie was, there was quite possibly a lot of people, you know, dads shaking their babies and the mom like, no, don't do that. And the dad's like, hey, I just saw the, in the John Travolta. It's fine. Hey, if Travolta can do it, I can do it. I love that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely, there are a couple of, you know, scientific uh, hypotheses, you know, are, you know, out there that have been thought about, you know, why do people shake babies? Um, And one is that the circuitry, you know, for rage is very closely, you know, it overlaps and interacts with the circuitry for cuteness. (laughs) And so uh, possibly it's like a crossed wire kind of thing. I've heard that put out there before from the scientific community. Um, it's it's not proven or disproven at, as far as I know. The other thing I've heard is, you know, evolutionary. A lot of things that we understand about ourselves as humans, we look back to evolutional, you know, origins to better understand how we got here. And if you are really in danger from neighboring tribes attacking you or wild animals and a baby's crying really heavily, um, at that point, I've heard people propose that it could be better to save the whole village. I'm not even joking. I, oh so I've God. heard a couple of different things out there. Those are really hard to prove. So you just try to accumulate a lot of evidence that seems to support one or the other and, um, or both. Um, but, you know, really everyone experiences it at some point as a parent because you so badly want them to be okay. And so what you usually recommend to people is when you start to feel that rage <laughs> enter your body, and this might sound totally shocking to people who don't have kids, but if you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, just put them down in a safe place like the crib or a safe place on the, in the middle of the floor, you know, not around any danger, dangerous items, and just walk away and deep breathe. Deep breathe. Whoa, that might have been one <laughs> of the darkest dark. <laughs> moments of the podcast ever. <laughs> oh, I wow. used to scare pa- parents and, my, and Justin would try to like, Keep me from telling people is the hundred days of darkness once the baby's born. Because if you have a baby that's not sleeping, it is a hunt. And if you have a lot of injuries during birth and you're trying to heal and you don't live next to family, it can be a hundred days of darkness. See, there's many benefits and pitfalls of having a scientist uh, wife, mom, you know, that's she she knows all the 
you know, the good and bad that can happen very explicitly. Yeah. yeah. And so she could be a bit foreboding. So yeah, yeah. she's, she's got solutions, but then uh spooky uh, <laughs> stories like, uh, you know, over the fire, you guys can have the spookiest stories. Um, yeah. Well, I want to hear like 10 rapid fire reasons why our rage wires may be mixed with our cute wires. I need that explained in any way possible. Mm. That is like uh, fascinating because I do think I've experienced that in small doses. Like, yes. uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's actually hard to even describe, but I know what you're talking about. Well, they think that that's the, cute, the cuteness genes. If you think back to a long time ago when we didn't have all the luxuries we have nowadays, if a baby cried or something and you lost your temper, you were fearful or, you know, because an animal would come eat you. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd have to make a, <laughs> you know, a choice. And, um, but the baby's cuteness is what stops you from making the terrible choice, right? So that's why, like, when you grab a puppy and you're like, oh, I want to eat you, you yeah, know? Yeah. I don't know. But you meet those, have those feelings. or Yeah, you know. there's a stand-up. Uh, Todd Glass has a whole bit about how, you know, the dog is so cute, he wants to bite it in the face. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, I mean, it might just come so the, the circuitry in your brain that really is, you know, promotes parenting behaviors, um, you know, it's something that is activated hormonally and now we know even human males you know upon seeing the baby after it's been born they can have a decrease in testosterone um and that's not a bad and more isn't better it's it's just different and so they that might be part of turning on the circuitry in the male brain um in like the xy chromosome brain versus the xx chromosome brain the female brain has like a different circuitry but that you know, cuteness and aggression and all these things are behaviors that we need. I mean, we were, our evolutionary purpose is to be born and reproduce more of us. I mean, that is ultimately it's right. survival of the, the fittest and to who can reproduce more offspring that then go survive and produce more. So really a lot of people that study the parenting brain, I do not, but one of my uh, PhD mentors, Lisa Glia does, and some of my colleagues do. And it's really, you think of the parental brain as once you become a parent, all the other circuitries are kind of serving, you know, your ability to reproduce and then keep those offspring to be also fit or, uh, you know, able to reproduce down the road and keep on passing that genetic material. Right. And other people who don't have kids, but support the survival of other kids in their life, you know, are part of that genetic pool. So it's not just about having kids yourself. It's about your genes somewhere being connected to someone else's genes. Man, that's absolutely wild. That's like free will even for me, but I'm going to try not to get into it and go back to the movie. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's another podcast. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's an, uh, part where he's explaining coffee and he's like, you know, this is black coffee and, and coffee regular is with two sugars and, and milk. And then he was like, I don't have milk. Can I borrow some of yours and, and take some of the breast milk <laughs> And then she tells him it's breast milk and he spits it out. And so I, I just wanted to bring that up as far as what's, why is it so bad to drink uh, human breast milk if we're drinking cow's milk all the time? Oh, it's not. Let's be very clear. It's not. And people will pay very good money in the black market for breast milk. Okay. Not that I know personally. Sounds like you have a hookup. But, uh, we'll edit this out, but, uh, you know, give me some info. Well, so when the baby's first born, breast milk kind of goes through an evolution itself, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It does. So it starts just. Colostrum, like Colostrum, they call them uh, liquid gold 
or the early stages of your breast milk is liquid gold because it's very yellow in appearance and very did not know that very uh, weird like one of the best things you could probably consume but yes. women only produce it for a very short period of time and wait, wait, you know, when you say it's one of the best things you can consume you're talking about you as in a it's normal packed. adult person yes well, it's packed full of well i mean <laughs> the baby the baby yeah. but okay. it would, it's not bad for adults either it's full of nutrients and antibodies and uh, lots like of good it's things. good for adults yeah you, i'd put it in my coffee if i had some you know? yes ladies don't ever throw that stuff away <laughs> what, really? there are babies that need it yes yeah. so if you have extra i guess uh you can i don't know give it to a, a hospital yeah so there's you know breast milk banks uh if you produce a lot of milk more than your baby can consume you can just freeze it and you can donate it to a lot of moms who either adopt babies or mm. can't produce breast milk or don't want to or can't, you know, for a, a logistical reason. Then, you know, a lot of people just pass it on. Uh, a lot of communities will co-breastfeed. I mean, we used to have wet nurses as humans. All of us at one point in history had mm. wet nurses. So there was that woman who was like the milk cow and she would just, <laughs> you know, nurse all the babies and the moms would nurse here and there. But wow. it was like, the wet nurse. <laughs> yeah. So wait, why that's hasn't... not the PC term. <laughs> that's not the PC term? I think they wanted wet nurse, yeah, more than milk cow. <laughs> they didn't like to be a professional milk cow? I don't understand. I got why, it. Why haven't, <laughs> why, why haven't one of the, uh, you know, workout conglomerates, uh, you know, GMC or, uh, you know, why, why haven't they popped on this and tried to make a protein powder <laughs> golden milk combo? <laughs> You know, um, I'm sure the recipes that go into formula for babies are probably mirrored in some way for, you know, bodybuilders or weightlifters. But definitely the the if you put your milk out on the market, there are people who are really into health and fitness who uh, will purchase it or people who are ill and, and, you know, can only do liquid diets and it can help them heal. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I think people, uh, I think you become very open-minded about breast milk and it's, uh, it's magic. It's like a magic with liquid. If you yeah. get a cut, your baby gets a cut. If they have an eye infection, you just squirt, literally you squirt breast milk in it and it goes away. Like, uh, it, excuse it's, me? it's really, I'm not even joking. <laughs> it's true. You could put it on like their little skin things that they have issue, eczema, Rash. eyes, rashes, yeah. um, their lips. Yeah. yeah, so now I'm really, I mean, drinking it and having a nutritional value makes sense. But if you're telling me now that it can cure wounds, now I really don't understand why it's not mass produced. Why aren't there professional, what'd you call them before? Uh, milk cows? Yeah, milk cows. Yeah. Right, yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if you've heard, Ethan, of uh, your, you know, gut microbiome. Oh, sure. But we now know that, you know, the microbiome microbiome, you know, environment in your GI system, your gastrointestinal uh, system is really important for brain developmental health and other just kind of central physical, uh, like really it's really important to like hide in everything. Mm -hmm. And so they're realizing that a lot of what you get depends on where you live. And some countries are very homogenous. So they're very similar in their biome. And some are much more diverse. And there's something about that diversity that makes you, uh, we think it's more implicated in like resilience to health and mental health problems. Wow. And in the United States, we're really homogenous. Like we all kind of are way too similar for the amount of diversity we have here. And so there are companies, I think they're based in Oregon, they're definitely on the West Coast, mm -hmm. who have harnessed the fact that within, you know, the first, I think around 30 
30 days of life, you know, it's pretty, you know, your trajectory of your gut uh, microbiome is kind of really the foundation is set. And so you can only go so far from that. And so breast milk is one way to widen that diversity, which we think is associated with resilience. It's a really new field. That's why I'm saying we think this, we think that we, we just don't know yet for sure. Mm -hmm. And so companies are selling, you know, um, breast milk that has good kind of um, different kind of cultures, I guess, in it. Um, wow. And that can promote that diversity on the West Coast of the United States. Um, and so some people are just buying it up. It's such a new science, but people would rather jump on that opportunity and have a more diverse forest, if you will, than, sure. you know, less things that might be prone to a specific insect or parasite. You know, the idea is that if you have more different diverse population, you're more resilient to things that insults that come along the way. So breast milk is really important. Also, who you hang out with is really important within the first like 30 days of life. What do you mean hang out with? Okay, sorry. So you, I just you, like yeah, dropped it. Yeah, it's so, like you're just talking about how important <laughs> milk is. And then right at the end, it's like, oh, and by yeah. the way, don't trust your best friends. So even <laughs> your dog, your pets, the people you hang out with as a little tiny infant influence, um, you know, your microbiome. And so who you're hanging oh. out with in that first, you know, month of life possibly might have some kind of significance in terms of health, mental health and physical. We don't know. It's a really cool thing. Um, I don't study it, but I've seen a lot of people talk about it at conferences. And I think it's really interesting. So if you really want your biological influence to live on on someone else, just go like hold a baby before they turn one month old. That sounds almost <laughs> evil. I feel like that's a risk. I don't know if you should be promoting it, um, but it is a great <laughs> yeah, teaser. No, it's true. Who knows if it's good or bad? Yeah. yeah. Well, to go back to Ethan and answer your question that on that colostrum, that gold, that stuff that... Uh, fixes all the ailments and you have to remember it's an evolution so it's the of the breast milk it's only a few days yeah. of that really so you couldn't i mean after the baby's been born mm -hmm. so even if a woman hasn't had a baby isn't able to produce milk she wouldn't be able to produce colostrum so you would be producing high fat milk well i mean it's great that these companies are doing that on the west coast because i'm on the west coast and you know i try not to have that much dairy like only as a treat so the fact that I can just have that, I mean, that's perfect. Yeah. And the official breast milk biobanks, not anyone, it's really hard to actually purchase from them. And it's really hard to donate to them too. Um, you know, you have to, you should donate if you can, but it's just, mm -hmm. you have to go through a lot of steps and your new mom and it's just, it's, it's hard. Yeah. Easier to do it on the black market. Yeah, it probably is. And so um, to purchase it though, you know, if you're those actual breast milk biobanks, they're only going to release it to people with babies. Like they're they right. are very careful about who purchased that. Well, yeah. people with babies or people that are charming and have a podcast and are, you know, into <laughs> experimental shit. Speaking of which... Regular coffee. There's, there comes a time... <laughs> it's just regular coffee. That's the slang. <laughs> there comes a time in every podcast episode where our associate producer, Emily Feld, asks a question about the health benefits of eating the placenta. Uh, now's that time. <laughs> it's totally that time. <laughs> so what are the health benefits okay. of eating the placenta? Yeah. Okay, so lots of different cultures for like, you know, we I think there's several hundreds of years ago, we have evidence that this is something that's been around for a while. And if you think again, let's go back to the evolutionary perspective, and I'm not an evolutionary scientist, but it's hard to be a scientist without considering, you know, evolutional origins at some point. So if you didn't have, you know, our whole society has changed so much in the last hundred years in terms of 
you know, the content of the food and food availability and fat and nutrients, we're not the same as we were hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. And so probably women did need the nutrients from, you know, the placenta is an organ. So your, your body just built an extra organ <laughs> to sustain another, and it built like another body. And we kind of like don't do much. I mean, just our bodies do this. It's just the most amazing thing. Yeah. And so we probably did need those nutrients at some point, you know, like mm -hmm. iron and folic acid and all these other things probably from the placenta were important back in the day to consume. Nowadays, we probably get a lot of those things, you know, in our own multivitamins or uh, your normal, you know, diet, just in modern day society, mm -hmm. um, for the most part, for most uh, uh, humans. And so you probably don't need it for nutrients, but I, there really isn't science to advocate one way or the other. Some people say that hormones and neurochemicals might be replenished by eating the placenta. And you can do placental pills where they kind of like dehydrate it into this whole process, grind it down. You Whoa. basically put it in a capsule and you consume a capsule. You just like swallow it. Easy or peasy. people actually, yeah, they'll like grill them up placenta. or they'll. I think that's the brand <laughs> <Yeah>. name. <laughs> Which is, by the way, what Christina did on our first kit. <laughs> Excuse me? We did. I bought into that, we Emily. Had, we had dried placenta, yeah. Yeah. And that's why she I knows so it, much about it. It has nothing to do with her career. No, it has nothing. I did not learn this from. So I, do, I can tell you that there's no evidence that neurochemicals or hormones could persist through like a dehydration kind of process. But a lot of hormones are really, I'm just going to use a general word, like really sticky in the sense that, I mean, they, they're in our water system. I mean, they're in our environment. They aren't going anywhere. And mm. so a lot of hormones do stick around no matter what you do. Whether they'll stick around at that high temperature to dehydrate a placenta and grind it up, I don't know. But I totally bought into it the first time I was pregnant. I didn't do it the second time, but the first time. And they gave me power and energy. And okay. I'm not, I mean, and, it, and it's not that I'm saying that they worked because there is the placebo effect. And the placebo effect mm -hmm. is still the most powerful anti, you know, um, psychotic, you know, uh, mental, any kind of mental health uh, diagnosis, and you take like some kind of pharmaceutical medication for it, the placebo still outperforms <laughs> all drugs on the market. Maybe there's that rare study here or there that, you know, by chance has found that it's more significant. But the power of belief on your neurobiology yeah. and well-being is, you cannot underestimate that. So if people take nothing from this episode, is that that the placebo is real. So if you take, you know, um, placebo uh, or placenta, that is the question. Plus, ooh, nice. <laughs> so I believed in them when I did it and it worked for me. Whether it was placebo or placenta, Ethan, you hit it, the nail on the head. But we why, know it doesn't why, hurt. Why didn't you do you it know? the second time then? Honestly. I'll tell you why. Because the first time was at a birth center uh, where we had yeah. full kind of like control of our environment and everything yeah. happening afterwards. The second time we ended up at the hospital and they're not as keen on being like, Hey, there's a midwife here. Do you want to keep the placenta and freeze it? That you could take pills later. So they're just, <laughs> it's a different experience. I didn't even see it. It was just gone. Whereas at a birth center, they're kind of like, it's like this. Actually, yeah, I don't know highly, what they did with it. I don't know where it they could have just carted think, it off and I think you sold got it on a black market. Yeah. They cloned our daughter. There's another one of her. <laughs> I mean, that's honestly kind of best case scenario that way. You know, you have a bunch of backups frozen in some lab. Yeah. 
There you go. <laughs> okay, I have uh, thoroughly enjoyed this uh, discussion, but we are running short on time. So if there's anything you guys would like to tell people about, uh, give a, a last word of advice or... I don't know if you people can donate to the lab or something. Oh, well, sure. Yes, please. Uh, it's uh, Cuban, but with a K at oh. uci.edu. Um, you could email me. Uh, but I just want everyone to know that, you know, a lot of medical professions, I think there's around half of our medical professions still, you know, are giving women, you know, not nobody asks about prenatal substance use. So if you walk in and you lurk, look a certain way, a lot of medical professionals are treating you and not asking about these taboo issues like, should you drink? Should you smoke marijuana? Should you smoke a cigarette? Should you do these? Um, so there is no known safe amount of alcohol, nicotine, tobacco, any substance that has the potential to be you know, overused. There is no known safe amount. So no matter who tells you what, oh, my kid was fine. Okay, but remember, did your mom use this? Did your husband use this? Did his mom use it? Like there's there's more to it. It's a com complex story. So abstinence is best when you're pregnant. If you accidentally <laughs> expose your pregnancy and you didn't know it, choline is an experimental thing. It's a normal thing that we need for pregnancy. Most women in the United States are nutrient deficient in choline of childbearing age. So we should already focus on choline but you can take choline supplements, you can take it in your diet. Uh, you don't wanna overdo it. Too much of a good thing can be bad. You gotta be really sensitive about the fetus, but focus on nutrition. If you accidentally expose your pregnancy because you didn't know you're pregnant and you're able to stop using substances during pregnancy, focus on nutrition and that will help the child overcome maybe some early insults. Also, my husband, Justin, like totally abstained from substances when I was pregnant to support me. And anyone hanging out with a pregnant woman should, should join her and do sober activities during that time because you, everyone has a role in the baby's wow. development. So that, that's, that's a long end. Here, yeah. here. That's and I, yeah, great. I agree. Great I, I, everybody, all the men in their uh, uh, pregnant women's lives and friends and everybody can really help by just instead of having champagne at the baby shower, just have orange juice or apple cider or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. remove it from their environment yeah, so that they don't have to be the only ones alone and choosing not to, you know, enjoy the alcohol. So. And or quit smoking. I mean, do the hard things. Stop smoking pot around her. Right. Um, and and also to all the partners, the same sex or, um, you know, transgender, the whole GLBTQ. I, you know, a uh, population, you know, all of us have a role in this. So I don't think, I think we should never underestimate that. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to put you on blast, Justin, but there were a few times where you would text me, meet me at the roller rink for Coke, and then we would kind of be up all night going round and round the roller rink <laughs> while... Uh... That was actually not Coke, though. That was just placental powder. That's oh. why we cried so much. <laughs> <laughs> but it felt amazing. <laughs> it really does work. <laughs> It could have been placebo, but man, that was like, my eyes were dry. It was so like weird. Um, okay. Well, I want to tell people that if they want to learn more about babies, that they should check out a new Seeker show. Seeker makes this podcast in case you're unaware of that. Uh, it's a new show about the science of babies aptly named Seeker Baby. It's hosted by Olympic gold medalist and new mom, Sean Johnson. The series dives into the science of baby smiles, breast milk, colic, tummy time, and more. Episodes are out right now on Facebook and Instagram TV. Thank you so much, Justin and Christina. You guys are fantastic. Uh, I had a great time talking to you. And maybe we can do Look Who's Talking 2 or Look Who's Talking Now? Absolutely. Look Who's Talking Now was set the sequel. 
We should do it. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you so much, Ethan. It was really fun. Thank you so much. Bad Science is hosted and produced by me, Ethan Edinburgh. Our associate producer is Emily Feld. Our engineer is Jeremy Schmidt. Bad Science is edited by Lucas Bollinger, and our social media is managed by Blue Whale Media. Shout out to EJ and Kate. I love you. Don't tell my girlfriend. And the executive parental producer is Brett Kushner. Oh, follow us on Instagram at BadSciencePod. If there's a movie you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, feel free to email at BadScienceAtSeeker.com. That's BadScienceAtSeeker.com. And please leave us an iTunes review. Give us five stars. I sound like an Uber driver, but we really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Bye.